It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Romaine Bostic, Taylor Riggs and Joe Weisenthal. What do you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Alcohol and cannabis are two things consumers can't seem to go without, even in the midst of a global pandemic and a halted economy. The newly legal marijuana industry has never weathered an economic downturn, so the industry wasn't entirely sure how it was going to perform in one. A study by MKM Partners found that demand for pot appears to be just as inelastic as demand for alcohol. Meanwhile, Cowan found that marijuana use reached an all-time high in March during the lockdown, with more people giving recreational use a try for the first time. To understand how this new stay-at-home reality is impacting demand, we spoke with one of the biggest players in the industry, Boris Jordan, the executive chairman of Curalief, and asked him if the surge in demand is going to let up anytime soon. Well, we haven't noticed any let up. There was a bit of nervousness in the market that that people were storing up in March and early April. But frankly, we've only seen strength to strength. We would have the strongest June we've ever had. We're having a a very strong uh, start to July. uh, And we're reaching, you know, sort of 30 percent quarterly type growth uh, numbers for our business. So, you know, we have not seen this let up. And actually, we've seen a, a tremendous amount of new customers entering the market. In particular, we've seen older people coming to the cannabis market during this COVID period, experimenting with anxiety and and sleeping issues and experimenting using cannabis to deal with those issues, whether it's edibles or lozenges or tinctures. They've been using a lot of different products in order to deal with some of the issues that they've been having during COVID. So, Boris, I mean, the big narrative uh, for the industry uh, definitely back in 2018 and even into 2019 uh, was the continued uh, decriminalization and legalization of marijuana, whether for medical use or for recreational use. Uh, That was a trend that seemed to be taking place uh, across the globe, really, or at least in some of the major nations. Here in the U.S., it seems to kind of have uh, fallen outside of the sort of political uh, debate at this current moment. Where do you see regulation standing right now, and do you think there's going to be a significant shift uh, in regulatory policy towards marijuana uh, once we get through the U.S. election in November? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to separate, you know, what's been happening at the state level in the United States and what's been happening at the federal level. At the state level, we've seen both decriminalization happening across the board. We've seen uh, uh, medical uh, uh, um, uh, marijuana use uh, being allowed. We've seen uh, adult use being adult use med- uh, uh, being allowed. So we're seeing tremendous amount of change. We've seen decriminalization. We've seen amnesties being given to criminal for cannabis use at the level of, of the state. So the states are liberalizing. They're doing it at the ballot box. And some states are actually trying now to do it at the legislature, like New York and Pennsylvania. 
um, in terms of moving to the adult use market. The federal government really has been in lockdown on this issue. I mean, they can't even get something as simple as SAFE Act, which would provide banking to the cannabis sector approved. Um, we, we're hopeful, um, you know, Vice President Biden came out yesterday uh, outlining his uh, policies on cannabis. He's made, even though he's historically been anti-cannabis, he, he's made some movement in the right direction. He said that he would almost immediately uh, permit uh, and reschedule for medical purposes cannabis nationally. And then he said that he would move towards something called the States Act, which allows the states to determine their own future in terms of cannabis use. So similarly to the way the gambling world works in the United States, where the states make those decisions, he's, he's proposing approving that kind of federal legislation, giving the states the right to make their own determination on adult use. Mm. But he did say that he would approve medical use, and I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Boris, I cut my chops doing some background analysis on state and local budgets. And I remember some early adopters within the um, marijuana industry. Some states are really looking at it as a source of tax revenue. Now, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic and tax revenue and revenue shortfalls has been really in the news. How are you looking at states who are um, looking to legalize this as an additional source of revenue? I mean, I, I wish, of course, that that wasn't the reason they were doing it. I wish they were doing it because it, it's much safer than alcohol. It has huge medical benefits, and it's the right thing to do. But the facts are the facts. The states have major uh, deficits in their budgets. They need revenues. Cannabis is a major revenue producer. No states that have legalized it for adult use purposes. And those budgets are big. The, uh, the tax revenues are contributing to those various states like Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington State, Massachusetts, and others. So I do think that as we see New Jersey in November go on the ballot, we think that it has the votes to pass. As we see Arizona in November on the ballot, and we think it'll pass there. You know, New Jersey is going to be a watershed event, because if New Jersey goes adult use, it is likely that both New York and Pennsylvania will be forced into that. And then Connecticut, obviously, because it borders Massachusetts. So by the time we're talking, if we talk again next year at this time, it's my view that we're going to have most of the East Coast in adult use. And then what will happen is that almost 80% of the population of this country will now have access to adult use cannabis by mid next year. At that point in time, I got to believe the federal government will have to act on, 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 uh, on rescheduling cannabis. So clearly you're anticipating the market the addressable market becoming ever larger. Is it therefore time to be splashing your cash right now, Boris? I know you've talked about opportunistic buying in terms of M&A for Cure Relief. Is that still on the agenda, particularly when does it matter which states these particular acquisitions are based in when we see COVID ripping so hard through some of the Sunbelt? Well, as you, as you probably know, we've been the most acquisitive company in the world in, in, in the area of uh, cannabis. Uh, in the United States, we have not broadened ourselves outside we will be um, closing shortly uh, in the next week or so the largest transaction ever done in cannabis, which is the grassroots transaction, which will take uh, Cura Leaf to 24 states uh, nationally. It will make us the largest cannabis operator in the United States, not only by footprint, not only by market cap, but by revenue, by a factor of two to three, uh, and by profitability. And so this is a watershed transaction. All the conditions precedent have been met. We're anticipating a few last things like board meetings and shareholder meetings to take place next week. And at that time, we will close the grassroots transaction uh, shortly. And likewise, today we closed uh, Blue Kudu in Colorado. Uh, we're closing another transaction next week in Arizona. We have a lot of transactions that are closing during this period. And we've been using 
the period of COVID and some of the difficulties in raising capital that other our competitors have had in this sector to double down on this sector during this difficult time. And we think that it's going to pay off in the long run. Do you think with regards to raising capital here with your relationship with whether it's banks or just outside investors in general, uh, what is that relationship like for you and other folks in the industry right now? Listen, our industry, you know, our, our cost, if you think about the, the speed at which we've grown, triple digit annual growth rates, most of the big U.S. operators are turning not only EBITDA positive, but net income positive this year and free cash flow generating. You know, if you were to put any metric of any other industry on these industries, you know, these companies would be, you know, 25, 30 billion dollar companies. And the fact is, is that they're not. They're, they're trading at, you know, six to eight times, you know, forward multiples. And so I think that it's 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 been and, and that just shows you that it's been very difficult. It's been difficult to raise capital. It's been difficult to access capital on a basis that is economic. And so most of these companies are undercapitalized. In the case of Cureleaf, we've had the benefit of very strong shareholder base that's been prepared to support uh, our strategy and continue to fund that strategy going forward. And so we've been lucky. We did do the first a bond issue for the sector in January it was a three hundred million dollar issue, but you know it was at thirteen percent. It's hard to imagine that mm. you know we can make money at thirteen percent borrowing costs, but we anticipate that that's a short term issue. We think that borrowing costs will come down with regulatory change, particularly if Safe Act or States Act or any of these things that uh, Vice President Biden talked about yesterday. And even if Vice President Biden doesn't win the election, it's our view that the Trump administration will not be able to ignore the fact that by this time next year, almost 80 percent of this country will most likely have access to adult use cannabis. Entertainment mogul Steve Stout is shaking up the music industry, offering musicians the ability to keep all the money and their work with his company, United Masters, offering a subscription model for independent artists, not contracts. United Masters recently hosted SelectCon, a two-day digital conference bringing together industry experts, artists and brands. Perhaps no better time for a discussion and collaboration as the coronavirus pandemic has upended the music and media business and recent calls for social justice has the nation rethinking its relationship to race and equality. Steve is founder and CEO of marketing agency Translation as well, which he launched with Jay-Z. Before that, he was a record label executive in Interscope and Sony, and managed artists, including Mary J. Blige and Nas. We started by asking him how much the artists he represents are hurting on income, and whether they are turning to brands to capitalize without the option of live events. Given this pandemic, the situation for, for, for most creators are, um, they knew they could make their money doing live performances and personal appearances. And because that market is dried up, uh, they need an alternative solution in order to create revenue. United Masters um, allows artists to go directly to streaming platforms and bypass record companies. It allows artists to own their rights. And we've seen tremendous growth and success uh, since we launched as a result of it. And SelectCon is a conference today that we are you utilizing to educate artists, entrepreneurs about making money, um, opportunities, owning their rights and becoming successful? I think that yeah. out of this pandemic, that legacy record companies are going to be a way of the past and artists will be going direct 
through United Masters going forward. So when we talk about those opportunities, Steve, I mean, obviously sort of the legacy model uh, of the record industry has already been in decline for years. Uh, are those opportunities, are they just about music or are you trying to sort of push these, uh, these men and women towards whether something more than just uh, making music and touring? So, yeah, because what I've also learned on the other side is not only do artists not want to work with record companies, but brands don't like working with record companies. So we've been, we've been able between United Masters um, and my company, Translation, my marketing services company, to put artists and brands together directly. Um, it's something that I've done for years, whether it be Jay-Z and Reebok and Beyonce and fragrance deals and things. I've, I've built a reputation of doing that um, with some of the biggest artists in the world. Now I'm able to do this at massive scale. And um, we signed a deal with ESPN. We signed a deal with um, Apple Music. We signed a deal with the NBA in which they, those brands are utilizing independent artists' music inside right. of their communications, inside their advertising. And it creates this opportunity where independent artists can get their music heard by millions because, because going to United Masters and having these opportunities with these brands allows their music to get um, streamed and, and showcased across different media platforms. Yeah. Steve, I'm interested, of course, you represent in large part African-American artists in particular. And we are at a moment of not only a global pandemic, but a, a global reckoning on the need for equality, in particular racial equality. How do you ensure that you're teaming the people you represent with brands that can speak authentically to that and that in some way we're not seeing a mismanagement of certain brands trying to suddenly get with a program, but perhaps talking the talk but not always walking the walk? Yes, you know what? I love the fact that you brought that up. Look, I believe generally that the advertising business is supposed to be the business on the forefront of seeing where trends are going and are supposed to be on the forefront of changing perception. Um, I am disappointed in the advertising business because since everything has come up recently around Black Lives Matter, they're acting surprised as if they didn't see this happening when the advertising and media business notoriously has not been fair and has not been forthright and has not been putting forth African-Americans and African-American culture in the most brightest light. Um, I'm using this opportunity that we have right now to course correct this. So on one side, yes, we're helping these artists become free entrepreneurs, not signing their rights away to record companies mm -hmm. and getting hurt in the process. We've seen that movie many, many times. Mm -hmm. On the other side, we're educating brands, helping teach them on the best practices on how do you promote African-Americans? How do you help African-American music? How do you help these young entrepreneurs succeed? And you can't yeah. look back and say, we didn't know this was happening. It's a surprise. No, it's not a surprise. This is something that you've seen for many, many years, and you were never incentivized to fix it. You are incentivized to fix it now. And that is exactly what my purpose is and why I've built this company. Yeah, I mean, interesting to see what the long-term trend is here, Steve, whether these companies sort of revert back to their comfort zones. I mean, black is the new black for the moment. But when you talk about working with these um, advertisers and these brands uh, with your artists and with other black artists, do you fear that some of these artists get will sort of get segmented off into only sort of marketing towards 
other black people? Is there a broader opportunity for these people in working with their brands so their music and their culture is much is sort of pushed out much more to the broad base masses? I think segmentation is bias. I think segmentation was some marketing algorithm that actually promoted racism. I don't think segmentation is something that um, has been helpful at all towards African-Americans. I don't think that young people buy in to segmentation. I think people like good music, people like bad music. And, and I'll give you an example of this. I used to go into the beauty aisles at Target or Walmart, and you'd see the African-American beauty section. And I'm sitting there yeah. going, why does black products have to be in the black section? Why can't you put beauty products in alphabetical order? But that's segmentation. Segmentation in media, segmentation at retail is wrong. And I am going to use my 30 years of being in this business, my 30 years of wisdom and knowledge and understanding to help break down these barriers. And I'm just thankful that this is a time that the world is focused on it. You're seeing young, diverse people come together and march in peaceful ways that are about unity. And if we can build businesses and build opportunities and teach brands how to yeah. market in a unified way, then I think we can come out of this better than we went in. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Howard University became the first historically black college to join the borrowing binge that swept U.S. markets. The school's $209 million debt sale drew a lot of attention, receiving four times as many orders as there was supply, indicating that there is demand for HBCUs to tap the bond markets, that as the national conversation around racism and systemic inequality continues. We spoke with Howard University's president, Dr. Wayne Frederick, about this debt sale, the current global push for greater racial equality, and the uncertainty facing colleges about how to safely open for the coming fall semester. We started by asking Dr. Frederick why he thought this particular bond sale had attracted so much investor attention. Well, well, you know, a couple of things. I think because we were doing a refinancing, people have had a chance to see us perform um, over time in terms of uh, from the first issue. I think also our recent uh, results, including uh, our ability to raise philanthropic funds, um, as well as our operational performance as we've launched a strategic plan, uh, I think has also been there. And then from a brand awareness uh, point of view, I think we have uh, set about making sure that we've really stamped our, ourselves on the nation's uh, consciousness in terms of what we're doing. The fact that we send more African-Americans to medical school, as an example, uh, is, is just one of the calling cards that I think people see. So I, I, we're happy that it was oversubscribed. Uh, and we certainly think that the, are the fundamentals of what people want to see in the market in terms of good management, uh, seeing a plan, seeing a, a way forward, and, and what we're doing strategically, uh, I think are all fundamental things that are necessary uh, in spite of anything else that people may be looking at. 
Yeah, I mean, Doctor, I'm interested in how the finances are going at the moment in terms of Howard University and at this moment where we you, I've heard you talk about a generous one million grant from Bank of America to help in particular free COVID testing. How is it this sudden on rush of grants? Are you seeing more interest? We talk about perhaps the CEO of Netflix really trying to target money towards the historically black universities and colleges. Is that something you're really tangibly seeing? Yeah, that's something that we have been seeing. Uh, we received an eight-figure gift from Bruce and Martha Cash uh, at the turn of the year. We also had a, a wife and husband couple in uh, Hopper Dean um, give us a, a $4 million gift towards our STEM program. So four of uh, the five largest gifts in our history uh, we've been able to raise in the past academic year. A lot of it uh, primarily because of the fundamentals that these investors are seeing in terms of what our output is. HBCUs represent 3% of higher ed institutions, but are responsible for a fifth, uh, 20, 20, 20 to 22% of all of the undergrad degrees uh, awarded to African-Americans in this country. So I think people see uh, the significant value in our HBCUs. How are you thinking about the reopening process in the fall, bringing students back, doctor, how that looks like, how that impacts enrollment, for example? Yeah, you know, we, we were looking at that very carefully. Uh, obviously, health and safety is going to be key. Uh, we can bring everyone back, and, and quite frankly, everyone does not want to come back. There are people with high-risk uh, comorbidities that, that certainly don't want to come back. And there are also people that are going to have other issues. The, the, the coronavirus um, pandemic has affected their own home lives in such a way that uh, they may not want to come back. What we are seeing thus far is very solid um, enrollment. We have a very committed student body um, that want to get to that finish line. They recognize that one of the best solutions for everything that has been taking place in our country over the past three months is their matriculation. And so they're very committed to that. Uh, we're looking very closely at their ability to finance their education and to make sure that we can support their ability to, uh, to do that financing as well. So, so far, enrollment uh, has been uh, pretty robust, to be quite honest. All right, uh, Dr. Frederick, I mean, you lead a university, uh, obviously a predominantly black university, a university that was created uh, to a certain degree out of the necessity uh, for black students to have their own space. Uh, you go back to Oliver Howard, you go back to the 1860s, the Freedmen's Bureau. And here we are today in 2020, George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests, and a lot of concerns here about racial justice and racial inclusion. I'm wondering, how does your university fit into that? How are you handling, I guess, the interest now that some students have in your university as opposed to what they might have had six months ago? And what are you doing to make sure that those students uh, are going to be able to thrive in a world that at times can be hostile to them? Yeah, that's a great question. As you mentioned, um, our, our very birth was out of that necessity. And that necessity, unfortunately, is still here today in 2020. Um, we are on a long journey uh, to justice. Uh, we have been since March 2nd, 1867, uh, when Howard was, was chartered. That journey is not going to end um, anytime soon. It is great that more people have joined the caravan and have joined the journey, but we also recognize that there have been moments in history when that has happened and then people have left the caravan. Uh, Howard University is not going to go anywhere with respect to this particular journey. We're still going to be here. We're thankful for uh, the people that have joined the caravan as of late and seem to be willing to go the distance, but we're very much prepared uh, to carry on the journey regardless of who 
has joined the caravan and if people leave it. For the young people who are coming, um, what I say to them all the time is this is your opportunity uh, to become that change. Our motto is truth and service. Uh, you do not come to Howard to get a degree. You come to get an education. And that education becomes alive and well when you go out and change the world around you. And that's what we're preparing them for. They are in an environment where we push them academically. It's a rigorous academic environment. But we also make sure that they, they are very confident in who they are, what their principles are, and where their moral compass must point, and it must point towards justice. Companies are working to salvage the summer blockbuster season. What is supposed to be the hottest time of the year for theatres has turned into a guessing game for when moviegoers will return to the big screen, with big-budget films being saved for theatres like Christopher Nolan's Tenet and Disney's live-action remake of Mulan continuing to face delays. Netflix's disappointing subscriber outlook offering perhaps some hope that consumers will eventually return to theatres. But just how realistic is this notion as virus cases continue to rise across the US? For the answer, we spoke with Mookie Gradinger, his CEO of Cineworld, the parent company of Regal Cinemas, and asked well, when he thinks he'll be able to get his business open anywhere close to pre-COVID levels. Step by step, I will start my answer, you know, and I will say, first of all, we want to see all the cinemas in all our territories uh, reopen. Uh, we are currently operating in 10 different countries and we are already open in four of them. And uh, next week, the FIPS is joining. Uh, the bigger one, which are the US and the UK, uh, are now planned for the 31st of July. Of course, this is all subject to permissions from the authorities. Uh, we are ready. We have invested a lot in creating a safe environment in our cinemas, all kinds of uh, procedures that will be taken when our customers will come. The importance for us of really keeping our customers and our team uh, in a safe uh, situation is very, very important. When are we going to be back in business as we were before? I guess it will take a few months, but with the big movies that are still planned for the rest of 2020, mm. I'm sure it's not going to be too long. Of course, the key movies really to welcome people back to the cinema world has been... Tenet has been Mulan. They're the key ones which I know you're hanging your hat on. Are you worried that the studios will have to push these back further, that they might not want to open amid the concern that customers just aren't quite ready to come back to Regal, come back to Cineworld? I think anyone in the world that have experienced the COVID-19 uh, experience here is worried. We should be worried. This is our job. I still believe that there is a room now for Tenet to open mid-August and Mulan uh, uh, 10 days later. I hope it will happen. Uh, if they will move, we are not losing the movies. This is one of the advantages. These are huge movies and uh, uh, they will stay with us. But I still believe that we can do August. But our responsibility as a management, of course, is to see that our company will be ready uh, for a situation that this will be postponed and we will need to stay close for a little more. So, Mookie, let, let's talk about some of the longer-term trends here because even prior to the COVID crisis, uh, we saw ticket sales, at least here in North America, uh, had continued to decline. They dropped about 4% in 2019. There seems to be much more of a shift 
whether it's by studios or whether it's by the public, uh, to watch movies, big budget movies at home, whether it's through Netflix or some of the other streaming channels. How does your business fit into this environment where a lot of directors and a lot of studios are now starting to look at Netflix and Hulu and the other streaming channels as a viable alternative to get their movies out there? So, so let's start with the facts, okay? The, the 4% decrease, which is the 4% decrease last year in the U.S., made 2019 the second biggest ever year in the box office. 2018, by the way, was the biggest. So I don't think this is a, any, has any uh, implementation on our business. Second, 2019 was the biggest year ever internationally. We need to remember that the new markets that have developed in the last 10 to 15 years have added a lot to the value of our industry. The cinemas have grossed in 2019 worldwide $43 billion. Out of this, the studios and the other distributors and movie makers have taken something like $20 billion. This is not something you give up easily. I'm fully aware, you know, that there is a lot of money being spent by companies like Apple and Amazon and Netflix, of course, on movies and taking talents and creating some of the movies that will be directly put in the home entertainment. But I don't see the home entertainment as competition. Hmm. My family has been in this business for 90 years, by the way. In 2nd of June, we celebrated our 90th year anniversary. And through the years, almost every five years, somebody would come and say, this is the end of the cinema business. First the TV arrived, then the video, then the DVD, then cable, whatever. Now we have the streaming era, and it is a great business, but it is not coming instead of going out. Nobody wants to be at home seven days a week. I see more as our competition, mm -hmm. parks, restaurants, and places like this, and the big movies and the big movie makers want their movies to be seen first and foremost on the big screen. Mm. And this is why it is our duty as exhibitors to improve the cinema experience all the time. And this is one of the main strategies of Cineworld and Regal. We're investing a lot of money into creating an environment that people will come and say, wow. And I just want to remind everyone that the experience is not only the technological experience, the big screen and everything. There is also a social experience mm. in seeing movies together. And when 200 or 300 people are watching together, a movie which is very frightening or is very funny. It's a different uh, experience altogether than seeing it at home with maybe two or three people around. Yeah. So I, I don't think this is the direction. There was a lot of noise now about some of the movies that went into streaming, but this is natural because the cinemas were closed. There yeah. are all kinds of discussions around it all the time. But the cinema industry is very strong. And I say again, you know, 2019 was the biggest year ever. 2020 probably, unfortunately, will be one of the weakest ones, but it's not because of us. Yeah. And I hope that 2021 will see again a great year. Mookie, I want to speak to you not only with your 90 years as, as your family's experience within cinemas, but... We, as a global business leader right now, you are sat in Tel Aviv, we are sat in the US, you have dominant force 
in terms of Cineworld's presence in the United States, in the UK, but you're across some 11 countries or so. Talk to us about which governments are getting it right. Talk to us about which countries you're finding it the easiest to be able to reopen or find that safety, balance of safety with enjoyment that you so hope to strike. I think at the end of the day, you know, I can talk now for half an hour in comparing territories because we are operating in 10 territories and we are also following very closely what's happening in the other territories. I think in general, the leaders have here something that they never experienced before. And there is a lot of responsibility. At the end of the day, the responsibility is on the shoulders of the governor of New York and not on my shoulders. So I fully understand that there are different rules and different restrictions, but all of them, first of all, are talking to us, and all of them are listening to us. And if the restrictions are too tough for some reason or doesn't make sense for another reason, they listen to us, we talk to them, we have strong organizations also uh, 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 in the countries, and we explain and we are being heard. We need to remember that Reopening the cinemas in the U.S. means that something around one million people will go back to work. This mm. is very significant. It's not only the issue of the cinema or the entertainment, but it needs to be safe. We are working on it. There are different ways of supporting uh, uh, between governments. There are all kinds of efforts. I will tell you, for example, that the British government have uh, initiated now a reduced on the VAT a level for cinema tickets and for other entertainment and out dining and uh, all this just in order to give this business a boost. There are some uh, countries that helped more with the issue of the uh, employees. Some governments were stronger in loans. So there are many, many differences mm. around it. And many governments are changing from time to time uh, uh, the things. I'm, as you mentioned, you know, I'm in Tel Aviv. But my heart now is in New York and in London and in Los Angeles and in Warsaw and in Prague. But we also have cinemas in Israel and they are also unfortunately these stage still closed. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close Show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.